Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Mike Sherman, Executive Editor at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. Today, I'm filling in for our Executive Director, Ted Struley. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently or upcoming stories. Trevor Brown writes our Capital Watch newsletter and covers politics. On Tuesday, he was at the state capitol where politicians gave Oklahomans a chance to discuss the political representation maps they submitted to the legislature for consideration in this redistricting process. Trevor, can you begin by talking about what the legislature is doing and what the time frame they're working under? Yeah, so the lawmakers will be heading back to the state capitol on November 15th for a special session to strictly deal with redistricting. Now, they were originally planning to do this well um, before this year during the regular session, but the Census Bureau didn't have the population stats ready for states. So like many other states, Oklahoma lawmakers will be returning to the capitol around this time to finish up in the redistricting work. Um, one of the main focuses would be on the congressional races, which they have not released the maps yet for. So congressional districts, uh, including the 5th District in Oklahoma City, you've written about that. I guess that's the one that's probably most hotly contested. That changed hands last election. Yeah, so over the last four election cycles, only the 5th Congressional District has really been competitive. Um, right now, it's... Um, being held by Representative Stephanie Bice. She won in 2020. In 2018, Democrat Kendra Horn won that race. And that was the first time a Democrat has won a congressional race in Oklahoma in many years. And um, this is really the most purple district right now in Oklahoma. Um, it fit, the 5th District covers Oklahoma County and some of the area to the southeast. But this is a changing urban area where the demographics are changing. So Democrats have a better chance there than many of the other districts. As you wrote in your newsletter, status quo is not an option because of the population growth. So they have to make some changes. Can you talk about some of the proposals the legislature is looking at in that regard? Yes. Yeah, so Oklahoma's population grew about 5%. Most of that came in urban areas, you know, specifically in around Oklahoma City. Um, so what they need to do is they need to change the maps a bit. Some of the proposals will have most of the urban core kind of set in place. Some of the other ones would split up Oklahoma City into three districts. Now that, in a lot of the maps, could shift the balance towards Republicans since, you know, the Oklahoma City district would be split up. So the Democrats would have less power there and Republicans could maybe more safely win in the 5th District as well as the other districts. So what's at stake not only for the 2022 elections but beyond? Yeah, so it's important to remember that this census um, work will lay out the maps for the next 10 years. So, you know, everyone's looking at what's going to happen in 2022, but this is going to be the map for the next 10 years. So this is definitely something to watch and it's something that's gonna really change oklahoma's political dynamics for the next five election cycles and republicans already have a super majority in the legislature so they control the process what recourse do democrats have if they think 
this has been drawn unfairly, gerrymandered, et cetera? Yes. So the courts have been very skeptical of overruling any challenges to redistricting here and elsewhere. Um, During the last redistricting around 10 years ago, there is a lawsuit that claims some gerrymandering was going on. Um, That didn't make it. You know, elsewhere around the country, we've seen a lot of lawsuits from people saying, you know, these maps were drawn unfairly. Some of them have made it to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court has almost, almost always ruled to let states do their own thing unless it, you know, violates the Voting Rights Act or, um, you know, the, the prospect of one person, one vote. But we really don't see the courts overturning anything along political lines. So there's a good chance of whatever the legislature passes on November 15th will be what we see come to actually fruition. Thanks, Trevor. You've written a lot about this and will continue to. You can also subscribe to Trevor's Capital Watch newsletter at oklahomawatch.org. Wendy Bryan wears many hats at Oklahoma Watch. In addition to her award-winning coverage of topics like mental health, domestic violence, and nursing homes, Whitney's our multimedia reporter. She provides most of the photos and videos you encounter with our stories. Whitney, thanks for joining us. Your recent story is also the latest from a relatively new story form for Oklahoma Watch. We're calling it A Mile in Another's Shoes. What's the aim of these stories and what makes them different? What makes them different is these stories are single source stories, and they're from the perspective of our source, which is unique to Oklahoma Watch. So basically, it's kind of, you know, it's in another's shoes. We're putting you in sort of the mindset of the person that we're talking to. And the idea is to get to know people, Oklahomans, who are advocating for change. Often they're involved in trying to change policy or, you know, education, you um, you know, government, um, they're advocating for justice, those types of things. And they're usually doing so because they've had a very personal experience um, that has inspired or motivated their work. And your subject for the most recent one is the sister of a man killed in 2016 by a Tulsa police officer. Who is she and why did you pick her? Yeah, Tiffany Crutcher, her brother Terrence was shot by a Tulsa police officer in 2016. And so she obviously has one of those very personal stories that has inspired and motivated her work. Um, she worked in healthcare before that, and now she is a full time advocate. She um, works with the Black Lives Matter group in Tulsa. She has organized a lot of protests, especially here over the last year and a half or so, um, just advocating for justice and Um, She works a lot with victims of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, really anything that has to do with um, police brutality against black people, um, racism in Oklahoma. Uh, Tiffany Crutcher really has her hands in in all of that, and she feels very passionate because she lost a family member to that kind of racism and brutality. So So what's the need for this kind of storytelling, especially at a site like ours, Oklahoma Watch, which emphasizes investigative journalism? Well, a lot of our journalism really revolves around 
hard evidence, right? We're always looking for documents and data. Um, people with real lived experiences is a huge part of that. And so we need the documents, we need the data, we need that kind of evidence that people typically think about. But frankly, we care about these stories, we care about that data and those documents because of people like Tiffany Crutcher, because people are suffering and hurting. That's why these types of changes are needed. That's why these stories should be told. And so what we want to do is really introduce those people, the folks who, who are being affected by you know, those, those data points. Uh, we want to put a face to those. And so this feature series is really important in helping our readers get to know these people that we're talking to, the stories that they have, and, you know, why it's important to them that Oklahoma change, you know, policies um, and the way it functions to make all of our lives better. So, Mark, your career as a journalist, and I just wonder why this kind of storytelling um, has become so important to you. I mean, for me personally, this is why I do the job. Um, the data, you know, the documents, all of that is so important. Um, but for me, it's really feeling like I can make a difference in the lives of actual Oklahomans, you know, my neighbors, my friends, um, my coworkers, my family. Um, these people are all impacted by policy in Oklahoma and they all have similar lived experiences to what our sources are telling us. And so for me personally, you know, this is why I do the work because um, it literally changes people's lives. And so without those people, without those faces and those stories, um, you know, the data and the, the documents just don't mean a lot. Thank you, Whitney. You can read Whitney's story on Tiffany Crutcher at OklahomaWatch.org. Keaton Ross covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. Last month, a group that includes 22 state lawmakers, prosecutors, law enforcement agency officials, and a retired judge finalized a proposal to simplify Oklahoma's criminal code. Keaton, what are the biggest changes in this proposed plan? Yeah, so in the proposal, uh, basically it would group all felony crimes into uh, 15 categories with common sentencing ranges and uh, some minimum time serve requirements. Um, Oklahoma is pretty unique in the sense that most states like Kansas or Arkansas uh, classify their felony crimes in this way where um, everybody kind of understands the sentencing ranges and it's, um, you know, group them together and it's easier to understand. Um, in Oklahoma, uh, lawmakers have basically just added and removed individual crimes and change their individual sentencing ranges one by one. Um, and it's, it's become kind of a long list and uh, difficult for the public to interpret and, and understand. Beyond the simplification for the law enforcement side, what are some of the benefits of this crime classification system? Yeah. So like I mentioned, a big benefit is just the public understanding. And if you have you know, let's say a jury trying to understand, well, if we give someone the sentence, how long might they serve in prison, um, kind of simplifies uh, some of those questions and makes it e easier to understand. Um, also, during the reclassification process, it's an opportunity uh, for lawmakers to uh, modify extreme sentencing ranges. Um, 
you know, bring bring down like life in prison for a, a second burglary offense and, and that kind of thing. Um, and also take some some antiquated laws off the books. So uh, kind of a good way to, you know, clean the attic or whatever. It sounds like there's a lot of benefit in uh, criminal justice reform in this plan, but yet some advocates are speaking out against it. Why? Yeah. So, uh, a concern of theirs, a major concern of theirs is the minimum time serve requirements that are included as part of this proposal. Um, so, you know, a lot of your uh, more severe crimes that were 85% where you had to serve 85% of your time in prison. Uh, most of those are coming down to 75%. But in the meantime, you also have uh, some lower level offenses uh, where, you know, previously there might not be you might not have to go to prison or you might not have to serve as much time now with these minimum time serve requirements. You might get the same sentence, uh, but you'll have to spend more of that sentence incarcerated as opposed to out on uh, parole or probation or whatever. Um, so some advocates and criminal justice researchers are concerned that will uh, cause our prison population to creep up again. Um, an estimate from forward.us, which is uh, the research group that analyzed uh, this proposal found that it would our population would go up about a thousand over the next decade if this is implemented. And DOC did its own estimates on that and they were quite different. Yeah, DOC's estimate was that it would uh, drop our population, prison population by about 900 and reduce the average sentence by about six months if implemented. Um, their analysis was uh, they looked at six crimes that cover about a quarter of the state prison population, whereas Forward looked at 50 crimes that cover 90% uh, of the population. So their analysis was uh, a little more broad. So what's next um, in this process? And will the public have a chance to, to weigh in? Yeah. So the next step in this, um, there was an inter interim study a few weeks ago where they talked about it. Um, and, and the next step is uh it will go to legislature in February at the next session. Um, lawmakers will be able to uh, pass it as is, make some changes, and then pass it or just reject it. Um, so, you know, there'll, there'll be a lot of conversation about that um, coming here in a few months. Um, as far as public comment, um, there haven't been any, you know, public listening sessions or comments um, about this proposal. Um, that's not required when bills are going through the legislature. Um, so the best way for, for the public to voice their thoughts and concerns on this at this point uh, would just be to, to contact your state representatives who are going to be considering and, and voting on this proposal. Thanks, Keaton. Be sure to follow all Keaton's coverage at OklahomaWatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we are grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Mike Sherman. Thanks for listening.